morning. Welcome. Got a fun kind of spirit in the room this morning. A lot of interaction. It's great. Um, trying to think about how to transition from that comment to my next comment, and I don't think I can come up with anything. So I want to start my the sermon uh, by actually talking about questioning God. See, I was struggling to come up with a transition. That's kind of abrupt. Um, but I want to talk about this, and you'll see why more fully in a moment. Is this is this working for you, by the way? Okay, great. Um, because in the context, the, the kind of the culture, um, the broader culture that I grew up in, the notion of questioning God, and maybe some of you can relate to this, the notion of questioning God was given a very, very negative kind of label, right? Asking questions of God was labeled as doubt which was very, very bad in the context, just the general kind of context I grew up in. Um, to ask questions of God, to wonder, for example, to wonder if God is really there, to wonder if God is really good, to wonder if God is really faithful, if God will really do what God has promised to do, to wonder those things, uh, particularly I'm thinking of in my, I didn't actually go to a Christian school, but I went to a public school in a very, very, very Christian culture, Christian town. Um, and so to ask questions like that was to exhibit kind of a dangerous lack of faith, so to speak. And it was definitely silenced, kind of suppressed. Does anyone, I don't know if anyone's felt this experience before or had this experience in the background. That's, um, and I can remember very specific instances in my life, um, when I was in middle school, high school age especially, in which I learned, just from interactions, I learned, I took in this lesson that it was not safe to ask questions that could be labeled as doubt, right? And there are all kinds of problems with that experience um, with that approach to faith. And I just want to mention two, two specific problems with that approach. Um, because one of them is if you simply suppress or ignore your questions, your very real questions that you have, if you just try to, try to pretend that they're not there, they don't go away, <laughs> right? Uh, many, maybe, maybe many of you have had this experience. I definitely have. Uh, what more frequently happens if you try to do that, if you try to just push them away, push them down. What more frequently happens is that the suppressed questions kind of fester, right? And they grow, and they gain more power than they should have, and they eventually can grow toxic. And that's actually something that I saw. I did um, college campus ministry for about eight years, and that's something I saw a lot on college campuses. I saw a lot of people, young people, who had harbored these questions for a long, long time, but couldn't express them anywhere, and they eventually just kind of exploded, and they just got rid of the whole, they just chucked Christianity entirely, right? So I saw that happen. But the second problem, that's the first problem, is that the questions don't go away. But the second problem is actually more directly relevant to the text we're going to look at in a second. The second problem is that pretty much every major hero of faith in the scriptures and the biblical literature actually questions God, <laughs> right? Pretty much all of them do. And we're going to look at one very strong example of this this morning, which is why I'm starting with these thoughts. And so I want to posit that if you think it's wrong to question God, just full stop, if you think that's a wrong thing to do, then you're actually working against the witness of what we see in our own Bible. <laughs> um, and that's something that needs to be taken really seriously. And to be clear, I'm going to give one more kind of explanation, and then uh, we'll actually take a look at the text. Uh, what I'm talking about here, when I talk about questioning God, I'm not talking about dishonest, shallow, cynical being critical just for the sake of being critical type of questions. You know what I mean by that? I'm not talking about those questions. I'm talking about the honest questions that you have for God, like the ones that are kind of in your bones, the ones that you can't shake. 
the questions that you just desperately want real answers to. I want to say it's not only okay to bring those questions to God and actually to each other. It's not only vertical, but it's horizontal too. It's not only okay to bring those questions to God, but I think it's vital. Because if you believe, if we believe that it's true that God wants actual relationship with us, then part of that relationship must be honest expression of questions that you have. And this makes sense. If you compare it to human-to-human relationships that we all experience, um, I can imagine that you could navigate a shallow acquaintance-level type relationship with another person without asking real questions. Like, you could maybe make that work for a while. But it's never going to get past shallow acquaintance level, right? The more intimate a relationship with another person is, though, then the more unhealthy it would be to suppress or ignore your questions that come up, right? If you have a spouse, you have a really good friend, they're really close with a, a parent or a sibling, suppressing or ignoring your questions is not going to like help that relationship flourish. So why do we not apply that same logic and framework to our relationship with God? It's really interesting, especially when we see the witness of people like Moses. So I would go so far as to say that good honest, vigorous questioning and wrestling with God could actually be the very thing that might enliven your own faith and your own journey with God today. And so with that all said, we're going to look at the example of Moses that I've alluded to, who is God's chosen leader of the Exodus, as he wrestles with God's call upon his own life to lead the people out of slavery out of Egypt. This is from Exodus 4, and I've asked Luke and Annie if they would hand out copies of the text So um, they're going to come around and give you uh, a copy. And I'm going to give everyone just two or three minutes to read it. It's not very long. We're going to read it, and we're going to do just a few minutes of discussion about it after you've had a chance to look. Um, So this text uh, comes right after last week Jordan talked about the very famous scene in Exodus 3, which is Moses' revelation of God's name in the burning bush, right? Very, very famous scene. This comes right after that. That's really, really important context. And I'm going to give, before uh, I give you a second to read it, I want to give a few pieces of of background and context and framing of this. Okay, so keep these things in mind. Moses has just been introduced, so to speak, to God directly. Remember that God has, for the people, for Moses and for the Israelites, God has almost become like a distant memory in some ways. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been generations gone. God has not directly spoken like this to anyone for a long time. And the people have been suffering under Egyptian oppression for a long time. So Moses being exposed and introduced to God's voice and God's name and this burning bush experience, it's understandable that it would be strange and probably overwhelming and probably frightening for him, right? Like, like remember, he is, like, the God, when it says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's, that, that, that language exists because God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in specific ways and then actually didn't really speak directly like that for generations afterwards. So God is identifying himself as the God who spoke to those, those forefathers, so to speak. But it's been a long time. And so suddenly Moses is kind of being like reintroduced to this God again. So not only has that happened, but also God has made a pretty dramatic promise to Moses through this whole experience. He's, gonna, he's told Moses, I'm going to use you to pull my people out of slavery in Egypt. So keep those things in mind. God's been kind of a distant memory, and also he's made a pretty dramatic statement to Moses of what what he's going to do. Keep those two things in mind as you read this interaction. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes of silence just to read this through this on your own. 
Um, and I want you to consider everything I just said about what role do questioning God, what role does questioning God play in this interaction? What do you notice about Moses' questions and what do you notice about how God responds to them? So take a few minutes and read it and we'll talk about it. I'd love to hear from you just a few minutes. Um, I'd love to hear if anyone has any specifically observations, like something you see in there that stuck out to you, or a question. If you've read something, you're like, I don't, I don't understand what's going on in this part. What are things you notice about the text and questions you have about it? If you could just take a few. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And he gi he gives Moses three different things to do, like a series of escalating <laughs> signs. Yeah, that's good. O other observations or questions? You can say this part doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, that's allowed. In the spirit of questioning God, that's allowed. What other things do you notice? 
Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. That is actually, that's verse 14, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. I want to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, but verse 13, Moses just kind of, it's almost like Moses is just like, please just send somebody else. You know, like he's already kind of thrown up these defenses, his reluctance. And actually, this is actually kind of depending on how you count it, this is potentially the fifth time, because there's two times in the previous chapter in chapter three where Moses expresses reluctance. He first he starts by saying, like, who am I to go? Which is actually kind of a funny thing because who he says, Who am I to go to Pharaoh? Well, you grew up in his house, you know, like Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, so it's a strange reluctance. But this is the fifth time Moses has expressed reluctance to God. That actually there's different ways of framing that. Like you can look at this as, you know, Moses being annoying, or you can look at it as God being extremely patient, actually. Like, five times, if, as a parent, I don't usually hang in for five times of expressing resistance. You know, uh, <laughs> that's, that is uh, not something that I'm very good at. So, so there's a way of looking at this as God is actually a pretty, pretty patient adult, you know, but, but gets to a point where it's like, no, just go. But even after that, Lord's anger burning against Moses, and Moses, or the Lord still gives, still adjusts. Even after that point, he still expresses a willingness to accommodate to Moses' reluctance by sending Aaron. Um, we'll come back to the, the Lord's anger burn against Moses in a minute, because I think that's an important thing to highlight. But uh, a couple other things, maybe maybe two, two more, two or three more comments. Yeah, that's a really good, yeah, there's so much, when you look at Exodus as a whole, and I think this interaction is very um, symbolic of this as well, there are so many things that happen in Exodus that make it clear that it's the Lord accomplishing it, and not people, and so even Moses' signs he's been given, he doesn't say any incantations, he doesn't say any words, He's just supposed to drop his staff on the ground and it happens, right? And this gets really interesting when you compare it later on to when he does these signs in front of Pharaoh's magicians. But it's supposed to be, it's, it's very clear that Moses is the, the channel through which it's happening, but it's God doing it. And it's not, it's not dependent on anything that Moses is doing. And so to your point, Katie, what you've observed, uh, God doesn't say, okay, well, I'll give you like, I'll give you, give you a silver tongue. You know, I'll give you this powerful speech. He says, just don't worry about it. I'm going to be with you, right? Don't rely on your skill. I'm going to be with you. Rely on my promise to be with you. Uh, one or two more observations. Yeah, Eliza. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I think Moses is an extremely relatable figure in this whole interaction. Um, I mean, I would run away if I threw a, a stick on the ground and became a snake. You know, like, it's a pretty wild interaction. And also it is, like, it makes sense to me that this whole interaction, this whole episode with God, it makes sense to me that it would be 
confusing, disorienting, fearful from Moses' perspective. It just makes sense to me. So there's something to be said for Moses hanging in there too, I think. I'm going to comment a little bit on those signs. I'm curious if anyone, were you going to add something, Dan? Or you were Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Something I want to something I want to end I want to circle back to is that point later because when we're faced with the dramatic promises of God, it's tempting to let our own inadequacies eclipse those promises of what God has promised to do. And part of Moses' journey here, I really believe, is coming to grips with the fact that God is going to do it and God is going to be faithful through this whole journey of the Exodus. And my inadequacies are not enough. My inadequacies are not enough to eclipse what God has promised to do. Right? That's a powerful thing. And Moses needs to be kind of brought into that understanding of who God is and what he's going to do. So let me, let, me, let me tie some of these thoughts together. Unless anyone else has a really burning comment that they want to bring up that hasn't been anything. Last chance. If your heart is racing, you should probably think. Bill, yes. Yes. Yep. Especially, absolutely, absolutely. Especially if you were just told by a bush that was on fire that you were going to be the one to go back to the place that you just ran away from, right? And you were going to confront the king of the most powerful empire of the world and tell him to let his slave population go so they could go worship their god. Like, if you were the one who was being told that, you would have some questions about how it's going to go, right? And, like, am I, am I going to walk into Moses' defense? Am I going to walk into there, and am, and, and am I just going to be thrown in jail and killed? Is that, is that how this is going to go? Like, I've got a pretty comfortable shepherding life now. You know, I'm on this mountain. I've got a wife. I've got a family. Like, what's the deal here? You know, like, just try to sink into some of those emotions, some of the, those questions. I think it comes from a really real place. And it's powerful to think that God allows his questions to exist and still works with Moses and works with him to get done what he promised to get done. So a few things I want to say about tying all this together. I love how in verse 1, Moses' Moses' first answer is, what if they won't believe me? Right, so Moses is kind of standing in for the people of God. Like, Moses is asking questions of God, but he's also saying the people are going to have the same questions of you, God. What if they don't believe me? And we'll, we'll just say, well, the Lord did not appear to you. There's some doubt on the part of the Israelite leaders that Moses is anticipating. And like I said earlier, the, the, the Israelites also need to, in a sense, just like Moses was being reintroduced to God, there's a, there's a sense in which the Israelites are being reintroduced to their God. And one way, as I've been studying Exodus, just as we've been kind of pressing into this series and looking at it ahead of where we're going to be going, there's, there's a way of seeing Exodus. One powerful theme through the whole Exodus is God making himself known in a real way, in a new way, to Moses, to the Israelites, and also to Pharaoh and to the rest of the world that's going to watch what unfolds. Like God making himself known 
is a really powerful thing because that speaks to God's intentions and God's desire to be known. But, not to be, but also God's desire to be known for who God really is and not be mistaken for another God, not be mistaken for some other power in the world, but to actually be known as the God who brought the slaves out of Egypt. And that, on that note, I want to comment a little bit about the signs, the three specific signs that were given. Because I think in the theme of God being known and God making God's self known in a specific way, these signs actually speak in surprisingly specific ways about God's character. So the three signs are the serpent, the skin disease, and then the Nile being turned into blood. And it's fascinating to dig into some of the cultural context of some of this stuff because the snake and the serpent, there's a little bit of question about how to best translate that, that word, but it's fair to say that it's probably symbolic of Pharaoh himself, right? If you know, if you know the, the headdress that the Pharaohs wore, it looks like a snake. It's a, it's a cobra, right? Um, and so it's probably, there's a probably a symbolic element of God being more powerful than Pharaoh. So when Pharaoh sees the snake on the ground, it stands for him, most likely. And so God is, God is expressing a specific, like, I am more powerful than this king, this would-be king. The skin disease is interesting. This is possibly God's uh, God's power, not only over Pharaoh as the king, but God's power over purity itself. Um, it's potentially a threat to Pharaoh's arrogance. There's a few other interesting stories. You can chase this down on your own. There's a few other interesting stories in the Old Testament of arrogant king figures who are given a skin disease to kind of like put them in their place. And so Moses demonstrating that this God has power over that kind of skin disease, which would be which would brand someone with a with an impurity and shame. Um, it shows God's power over that. God's God's power over even arrogant kings. And then finally, the Nile. The Nile is the source of Egypt's wealth, Egypt's food. The Nile itself was kind of considered a divine figure in Egypt. And God, is, God has power over all of that. So you can see where if you put these signs together, they're not just neat, neat magic tricks, right? And actually, it's also why I'm coming around to, we, we know about the plagues. You probably know about the plagues. I'm coming around to actually relabeling them. Uh, there's other uh, Old Testament scholars that use this language, but I like the language of signs as opposed to plagues because it combines all of these signs that God is doing are kind of teaching everyone about who God is and what God's intentions are. And the plagues, as we'll see as we get into that part of the story, they have, they have really fascinating things to teach as well. But the snake is God's power over Pharaoh himself. The skin disease is God's power over purity and impurity and potentially putting an arrogant king in his place. And then the, the Nile is God's power over the most powerful thing in Egypt, right? The thing that gave Egypt all of its comfort, all of its food, its economic security. And if the Nile in the eyes of the Egyptians was divine, then God is more powerful than that divine figure. This is really, really, really interesting to me because, because what is Moses learning as he's experiencing these signs? He's learning, oh, this is who God is. This is how powerful God is. This is what God is going to do. And I'm supposed to walk into Pharaoh's household and demonstrate these things to Pharaoh. <laughs> and I want to connect that today. This is all interesting from a cultural perspective. But I want to rem remind us and remind myself that what, what we believe is that God is still more powerful today than comparable things in our world. 
if God at the time was more powerful than the most powerful divine figures, God is still more powerful than these apparently powerful elements in our world today. So we don't think about divine kings, we don't think about divine rivers, but I think sometimes we give divine status to things like inflation or the economy, things like political animosity, things like war, things that we believe control our well-being and our life, and things in which we are tempted to invest, literally, (laughs) invest our well-being in. I think these are comparable. And part of what looking at these signs that God gave Moses reminds me is to say, no, God is more powerful than those things. Do I believe that? Do I really believe that? I mean, that's what Moses was charged with, teaching the ancient, teaching the Israelite leaders, and then eventually teaching Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt, is that no, God is more powerful than all these things that you think are the most powerful. We are tempted to worship. I also want to say a little bit before we end about God's anger when it says the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Because I don't know about you, but when I read that, something bristles bristles in me. It's like, no, God's not supposed to be angry. You know, like, it's uncomfortable. But I want to say that I don't think, we already talked about this a little bit, I don't think God is angry with Moses as an impatient adult with a child would be. It's so easy when you read language, and it's tough, I get it. It's really tough to read language about divine anger or wrath. But man, when you read that stuff, it's we automatically project our human experiences of anger and wrath onto what God is, is feeling and doing. And that's really, really um, fraught. Because I, real, I don't believe that God is angry in the way that I would get angry in this moment. But I think... God is angry at Moses' reluctance to trust that God is good. Moses' reluctance to trust that God will follow through on what he just told Moses he was going to do. As Dan actually said earlier, Moses is overemphasizing his own lack as though his inability to speak is stronger than God's ability to save. And I think when God sees that, it stirs up this response that we see in verse 14. I see God's anger as, well, truly a righteous anger, but truly a passion, a passion to save and a passion to not let someone like Moses' lack of trust get in the way of God's passion to save and restore. That is a really, for me, a very, very helpful way to frame language about God's anger. God's anger is for something. God's anger is not just against something, but it is for something bigger. And it's important to note that God does not smite Moses. <laughs> There's a lot of ancient stories, and I, I've, read a, I've read a decent amount of other ancient stories about other divine figures, the Enuma Elish, and things like that. It would be very easy to imagine in one of these stories that the, the God just kind of smiting the person out of the way at this point, you know? <laughs> just, okay, you're done. I'll find someone else. God doesn't do that. It's remarkable. Remarkably patient. God remains committed to God's plan, even through Moses' questions. And so here's where I want to end. To circle back to what I started with at the beginning, Moses' honesty with God through this whole interaction is so powerful and important. 
because Moses is learning who God is. And there's two sides to this. Moses is learning who God is, and God is willing to teach him who he is. And I want to suggest that Moses' honesty, even as it shows up as a reluctance, and it can be kind of a frustrating thing, you know, like it feels frustrating as you read it. I think Moses' honesty is ultimately, ultimately a good thing in the story. Because the honesty is what moves it all forward. There's a, I don't know if anyone knows who Frederick Buechner is. He's a writer, uh, pastor, writer that I really like. He has the phrase that doubt is the ants in the pants of faith because it keeps it moving. You know, <laughs> don't get, you don't sit still. It keeps it going. Um, and I think that Moses' questions propel things forward, and it shows the conditions for God to display more of God's power, more of God's character, because the questions bring out, bring out more. And God is willing to teach more as the questions come up. And I can tell you in my own journey, just my own faith journey through the course of my life so far, some of my most transformative and important moments have been the moments when I've finally come to terms with my honest questions, my honest doubts. And when I've said, both to God and to other people, that's a really important part of this. It's not very rigidly individualistic but when i've said openly to god and to other people i don't think i believe right now like i just don't i just don't and this is why because what and when i've said that and not gotten shut down been listened to been empathized with something powerful happens there When you confess these things, when you ask them, again, these are the questions in your bones that you need answers to. A life of faith is a life of asking those questions to God. And also, Moses' questions are part of what resulted in God giving Moses the signs, actually. What if, just as a counterfactual, what if Moses walked into the burning bush, God delivered his name, said, go to Pharaoh, I'm going to save you, and Moses said, got it, and walked down the mountain, right? <laughs> He wouldn't have, if he never asked any questions, I God wouldn't have given him these signs. God wouldn't have explained more of who his intentions were, how it was going to all work, right? So there's something about the questions that brings out God's relating and God's willingness to do this work and do this saving work. So when it comes to us today, we're going to go to communion in a moment with all this in mind. In our context today, I want to encourage us, I want to exhort us to embrace Moses' posture here of honest questions of God. If you have them, if you're in a season in your life where you don't have them, great. Walk with someone who has them, right? Be with someone who has them. And don't freak out if they have them. Walk with them. Hear them. Receive them as God receives them. But embrace Moses' posture here, because the Exodus story, the Exodus story is a really helpful framework for this, for us, because this is the last thing I want to kind of highlight. Moses' questions were stirred up in the face of God's dramatic promises. And I think similarly, when we are confronted, like confronted with the power and the drama of what God has promised to do, we realize it's so much more than what we can do on our own, so much more than what we can believe on our own. So for example, God, in this story, in the Exodus story, really, God, God, you're going to rescue this like motley crew of oppressed people who have no material resources, who have been oppressed for generations, you're going to rescue them out of the from under the thumb of the most powerful and wealthy empire in the ancient world. Like, really, you're going to do that? How's it going to work? How's this going to happen? 
That's the dramatic promise, and those questions come as a result. Or today, really, God, you, you, you promise that we can experience profound peace, we can experience assurance, forgiveness, awareness of your presence. We can all experience that today. We can experience a freedom, we can experience a liberation from what enslaves us, to use the Exodus language. We can experience that. Or on a bigger scale, as we prayed about earlier, you're really present and active in a world that has pandemics, that has war, that has toxic cultural divisions that are breaking apart families. You're really, you're really present and you care about what's going on? Like, really? You care about this? And I can feel that you care? Like, really? And you're making all things new? You're working out your purposes? Like, really? I think if you've let those dramatic kind of promises of God hit you, then your questions come up, and that's a good thing. Because if these are questions that you hold in your mind, if, they, if they're questions you walk with today— but perhaps you've not asked them confidently of God, I hope you can take comfort in the inspiration from this story. I hope you can take comfort in this community. I hope you can find, whether it's a triad or someone, I hope you can find a pocket in this community in which you can express these questions honestly. Because the expression of those questions is part of the journey. And I would say the expression of your honest questions might be the very thing that sparks and propels a healthy and healthier relationship with God.